The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Modern technology has ushered in a new era of augmented reality, one so sophisticated that some argue, within a century, we will be unable to distinguish the real from the virtual. Yet with increasing concerns that virtual reality is simply a flawed escapism, could we imagine ourselves living meaningful lives inside a virtual world? Today we invite world-renowned philosopher and cognitive scientist David Chalmers to outline his very original take on the matter. David Chalmers is an Australian philosopher and cognitive scientist who specialises in the philosophy of mind, language and more recently, virtual reality. He is the Professor of Philosophy and Neuroscience at New York University as well as the co-director of NYU's Centre for Mind, Brain and Consciousness. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, where you can find hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome David Chalmers to Philosophy for Our Times. Hi, welcome to this talk on From the Matrix to the Metaverse. I'm David Chalmers. And I'm looking forward to exploring with you some philosophical issues about virtual worlds, including the Matrix and the Metaverse, two famous examples from science fiction and quite a few others besides. So the themes I'll be talking about today, I explore at some length in a book I just published a couple of weeks ago now called Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Today, I'm just going to you know, go fairly quickly, a quick romp through a few key themes of the book. If you're interested, you can explore them at much greater length in this book. The basic idea here is a philosophical inquiry into virtual worlds and virtual reality. So I think they really raise huge numbers of philosophical questions, and they actually shed light on many traditional issues in philosophy as well. For my purposes, I like to you know, define terms when I can. So one key term is a virtual world. By a virtual world, I mean an interactive computer-generated world. Example, World of Warcraft, a massive multiplayer online video game where many people go and hang out in this computer-generated space, which they can interact with. They can interact with other people. They can interact with the world. That's a video game virtual world, but virtual worlds don't need to be video games. 
the world of Second Life. Peaked around 2007, but still going, still fairly big today. People use this for all kinds of social purposes, work, play, employment, community building, relationships. So it's a canonical virtual world. But these two virtual worlds are not yet virtual reality. Virtual reality requires a third condition. Virtual reality is an immersive interactive computer-generated world. Here, the key extra condition to be virtual reality is immersiveness. Virtual reality or VR, you experience from the inside, three-dimensionally, you're immersed in a world that's all around you. So World of Warcraft and Second Life are not standardly experienced this way, but there are many worlds now one can experience through, say, a virtual reality headset, the Oculus Quest 2. I have my own Oculus Quest 2. You just put it on, and suddenly, wow, there's a, a, a three-dimensional world all around you that you can experience and interact with, play games. There are also social virtual worlds that you can experience through VR as well. But for full-scale virtual worlds, my two paradigms are the matrix and the metaverse, both from science fiction. The matrix is a paradigm of the idea the whole universe might be a simulation, that we could end up to be in a simulation ourselves. The metaverse is a paradigm of the idea of virtual world technology that we develop and then use and then enter a virtual world. It comes from Neil Stevenson's novel, Snow Crash, where uh, the metaverse was a place where people increasingly spent time. So this stands for coming virtual reality technology. And I think all this requires philosophical analysis, both for philosophical purposes and for practical purposes. Now, I have a key unifying thesis, which is virtual reality is genuine reality. And that has a number of sub-theses. I mean, people very frequently say that virtual reality is some kind of fake or fictional reality. It's a second-class reality. It's an illusion. That's the thesis I want to reject. I want to say virtual reality is different from physical reality, but in many respects on a par with it. And this breaks down into at least three sub-theses. First, it's possible that physical reality is already virtual reality. That is, it's possible that we are in virtual reality already. I don't say that we are in such a virtual reality. I don't even say necessarily that it's more likely than not, but I think it, we might be, and it's not something we can rule out. Second, I think virtual reality is not an illusion or a fiction. The objects we interact with in VR are real objects. There are digital objects, to be sure, but they're no less real for all that. Needn't be an illusion or a fiction. Third, we can lead a meaningful life in virtual reality. Um, it needn't be escapism. It needn't be meaningless. In principle, many of the sources of meaning of life in a physical reality can also be present in virtual reality. So I'll try and defend those three theses fairly quickly in what follows. And I'll do this with reference to these two, you know, these two big tentpoles, tentpole ideas of virtual worlds. I'll start with the matrix which illustrates the idea that we could be living in a computer simulation. And then I'll switch to the metaverse, which illustrates the role of coming virtual reality technology that we'll, that we'll use and increasingly spend our time in. 
I think some of the morals you get from the matrix will then generalize to apply to the metaverse, hence from the matrix to the metaverse. But I'll start with the matrix and with the idea that we are in a computer simulation, sometimes called the simulation hypothesis. The simulation hypothesis says we are in a lifelong computer simulation. So like Neo at the beginning of the matrix is in a lifelong computer simulation. By the time we get to uh, matrix resurrections, we've discovered, okay, there's a simulation, there's a world out there, there's a, there's a new video game based on it, there are modals, there are potentially simulations within simulations. There's still many characters in the, uh, in the matrix at various points turn out to be in this giant lifelong computer simulation, namely the matrix. They're inside, they're inhabiting a simulated world. This is great for a philosopher because it's highly reminiscent of a famous challenge issued by René Descartes back in the 1640s in his Meditations on First Philosophy, sometimes viewed as a founding work of modern philosophy. Descartes was interested in the question, how, what can we know and how can we know it? He asked the question, how do you know anything about external reality? How do you know you're not dreaming right now? How do you know that your senses aren't fooling you? Or most famously, how do you know an evil demon isn't deceiving you by producing sensations as of an external world when none of this is real? These days, we ask that question by raising questions like, how do you know you're not in a simulation? So these days, we pose Descartes' question by asking, how do you know you're not in a simulation. And it's very hard to see how you could ever know for sure that you're not. You might think you could have some conclusive evidence that you're not in a simulation. I don't know, maybe the behavior of your cat or your best friend or something in nature somehow proves we're not in a simulation. But it sure looks like in principle, any evidence could be simulated. There could be simulations of your cat or of your best friend or of, a, or of nature, which would in principle be indistinguishable from physical reality. It may well be that in a few years we'll actually develop simulations like that. So the simulation hypothesis actually improves on the evil demon idea in at least one respect, which is that as VR technology develops, it's becoming a serious possibility. We don't yet have universe simulations indistinguishable from physical reality, but you know, give it 50, 100 years, I wouldn't bet against it. It's entirely possible that before long we'll have these simulations. That will then make it a very serious live possibility that we're in them once we know these simulations are possible. Furthermore, as the philosopher Nick Bostrom has observed, there's statistical reasons for thinking simulated worlds could end up greatly outnumbering unsimulated worlds, in which case it may be all the more likely that we are ourselves simulated creatures just on probabilistic grounds. All I need for my purposes is the, uh, the somewhat weaker conclusion that we can't know we're not in a simulation. And that's the first of my three central theses about virtual reality. Now you might think, okay, well, that's bad news. If we can't know we're not in a simulation because being in a simulation is gonna be very bad. Everything is an illusion. It's a deception, it's a, it's a fiction. But my view is actually that simulations need not be illusions. And this gets to the second thesis. My view is that we could be in a perfect simulation, but if we are, the world around us is still perfectly real. There are still cats and dogs. There are still, there are still books and houses. There are still people and planets. 
they're ultimately, they may be digital objects if we're in a simulation made of you know, underlying level of digital processes, but that doesn't mean they're any less real. This of course raises many deep questions about what it is to be real. A question that was famously asked in the Matrix movies, where Neo says, God, this isn't real. Morpheus says, what is real? How do you define real? And I would actually argue that in this case, these digital objects that they're experiencing nonetheless deserve to be counted as real objects. I mean, what is it to be real? It's a complicated question. Real has, the word real has many meanings. But I would say here are three central strands in our concept of real. Something is real if it makes a difference in the world, if it can affect things in the world, it has causal powers. Something is real if it isn't all in the mind. If something's wholly within our minds, like a dream, then we think it's less real because it's not outside ourselves. If something is outside ourselves, then that's a strand of reality. And third, maybe most important, something's real if it isn't an illusion. If you experience a pink elephant over there, but there's no pink elephant there, then the world is not the way it seems. That's an illusion. The elephant isn't real. So I would say that if we're in a simulation, the objects around us are real by all three of these criteria. If we're in a simulation, then maybe you know, the, uh, the tables and chairs around us are digital objects made of computational processes, but they still, they make a difference within this simulated world. One digital object affects another, they affect me. They're not all in the mind. You know, I can go to sleep, I could, I could die, the, uh, the simulation will keep going. And I would argue they're not an illusion. But it seems to me that you know, I'm here in this space with, with books, with a coffee cup, and so on. I say there really is a coffee cup here. Maybe it, this coffee cup will turn out to be a digital object made of bits and some computer process. That's not obviously worse than being made of, say, quantum mechanical processes. Quantum mechanics is kind of ethereal, but we still say the coffee cup is, is real. Likewise, I think, if it turns out to be made of bits. This is interestingly reminiscent of what's sometimes called the it from bit hypothesis in physics, uh, named this by John Wheeler. It's the idea that everything in the physical world could turn out to be made of bits. You know, we've got trees and hills, which are made ultimate, made of physical particles like atoms, but underneath the atoms and the quarks, there's a level of bits, maybe uh, yeah, computational dynamics among a bunch of digital objects. It could even be that underneath the bits is a further level of, you know, the bits themselves are implemented, say, by some more basic computer circuits, perhaps in the next, in the next universe up. I call this the it from bit from it hypothesis. Underneath the bits is a level of it. But most importantly, under the it from bit hypothesis, the its are still real. The trees are still real. The particles are still real. Being made of bits doesn't make them less real. So, so I say for the simulation hypothesis. The simulation hypothesis could actually be, it's a version of the it from bit hypothesis, except that it's got one extra element too. Where you have a simulation, you have a simulator. Simulator in effect created all these bits and thereby created reality. So I want to say the simulation hypothesis is basically equivalent to a version of the it from bit hypothesis that also involves a creator. So that then, so my conclusions then about the matrix and the simulation side of things are, yeah, bad news, you might think, yes, we could be in a simulation, but good news, if we're in a simulation, things are perfectly real. So if it does turn out we're in a simulation, that's at least less of a disaster than you might have thought. So that leads us halfway to our conclusion. Virtual reality is genuine reality. I'll now switch to the metaverse half. 
but we're now thinking more practically about coming virtual reality technology, such as the kind that you experience through headsets. I mean, the word metaverse gets used in many different ways. And right now it's very slippery, evolving in many different directions. When Neil Stevenson introduced it in his novel, Snow Crash in 1992, the metaverse was a single massive social virtual world that many people would visit and hang out with and interact with and do all kinds of things. It was a single world. And people for a while used to talk about building their own metaverse. You know, Second Life would be a metaverse and maybe VR chat will be another metaverse. But the term has actually evolved. Now, now that you've had you know, Mark Zuckerberg come out and you know, rename his whole company, Facebook, rename it as Meta, as a statement of their ambitions to help build the metaverse, here now people don't talk about you know, one metaverse. They talk about the metaverse as being this global interconnected system, a bit like the internet. So now metaverse means a global interconnected system of virtual worlds, sometimes called the immersive internet. It's global the way the internet is, but the key addition is it's immersive. We experience it from the inside as through, say, VR headset, augmented reality glasses, and so on. So the spatial three-dimensional internet. So the metaverse is somewhat different from the matrix, or they have a lot in common. You don't spend, maybe you spent your whole life in the matrix. The metaverse, you enter for a while, and then you leave. At least not for now, you don't spend your whole life there. Furthermore, you know when you're using a VR headset, there's no issue. Could I be in VR now? I mean, maybe sometime in the future there will be, but for now, you know, you know, you feel the headset, you know it's there. And this is far simpler than a universe simulation. But I still think many of the issues are continuous between the two. We can raise exactly the same question. Is the metaverse a world of illusions? And many people will say that it is. Even proponents of the metaverse. The science fiction writer, William Gibson, in the 1980s, introduced the term cyberspace in his famous novel, Neuromancer, which for him, cyberspace basically meant what we now mean by virtual reality. And he said that cyberspace, meaning virtual reality, is a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of people. So he thought VR is a hallucination or an illusion. And you get this everywhere for people talking about these issues. The standard view is virtual objects are unreal. They're illusions, they're hallucinations or fictions. I wanna say virtual objects are real. As before, they're digital objects as before, but they really exist and they needn't be illusions. I mean, we can make this continuous with the matrix case. If we're in a full scale simulation, the objects we're interacting with are real digital objects running on a computer. Generalizing, I'd say that even in ordinary virtual reality, even the fairly primitive virtual worlds we hang out, hang out in today, the objects we're interacting with are real digital objects running on a computer. They really exist and our experiences of them needn't be illusory. When we experience them, we, for at least for an expert user, we interpret these things. These are virtual objects in virtual worlds. That's how we perceive them. And they really are virtual objects in virtual worlds that needn't be an illusion. So this brings us to the third and final question. Can one have a meaningful life in a virtual world? Can life in VR be as good or better than life in non-virtual reality? And again, there's a long history of people saying no to these questions. Perhaps most famously, back in 1974, the philosopher Robert Nozick 
in his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, put forward his fable of the experience machine. The idea is that you, your body is floating in a pod and you're fed amazing experiences of you know being out of the world champion of whatever activity you're most interested in, happy family, great friends, wonderful job. Nozick raised the question, should you enter the experience machine, pre-programming wonderful experiences for life? And his answer was a resounding no, you shouldn't. He gave three reasons for that. First, maybe most importantly, the experience machine is pre-programmed, pre-scripted. You have no autonomy there, no real free choice. It's all going to happen. You're just kind of a passenger. Second, the experience machine is illusory. You're not genuinely in contact with reality. Nothing really happens in the experience machine. Third, the experience machine is artificial. It's human-made. You have no real contact with nature. I want to say that none of these three reasons, maybe these are good reasons not to enter the experience machine, especially the first. I don't think any of them are good reasons not to enter VR. Most importantly, virtual worlds, VR, even as it exists now, is mostly not pre-programmed or pre-scripted. Okay, maybe some video games, you've got to go through a certain succession of levels, but you enter a world like Second Life or VR chat or whatever, and you, you have free will, you have free choice. There's no pre-scripted outcome for you to go through. You can, you can enter, you can build relationships, you can build community. You have free will in VR. That's part of its being interactive. Furthermore, I've already argued VR is not illusory, or at least needn't be illusory. You're in contact with genuine reality inside VR. Maybe digital reality, but it's not an illusion. Third, VR may be human-made, thereby artificial, but I'd say that's not necessarily such a bad thing. Um, you know, many of us choose to spend our time in cities. I live in New York City. It's an artificial environment, largely human-made, but you can clearly still have a meaningful life there. I would say the same is true for VR. More broadly, I'd say that our lives have meanings. Why do our lives have meanings, even in physical reality? I think it's because of our experiences, our relationships with others, our projects, our achievements, the communities we enter and so on. And again, principle, all those values can be present in VR. There's no privileging of physical reality here. Those sources of meaning can be present in VR. VR may be missing some sources of value for some people. If you really value nature, that's okay. Yeah, you won't get, uh, you won't get pure nature in VR. If you really value sheer physicality as opposed to an indistinguishable experience, and again, that's something someone could value. If so, VR may be less for them. There are issues about whether you can have genuine birth and death in VR, maybe eventually once it's matrix-like, but you know, that may take a while. So yeah, VR is missing some important things. At the same time, VR will also have new sources of value, you know, new forms of embodiment, new bodies, new forms of experience. You can fly, you can teleport, near unlimited space with an abundance of virtual goods instant travel, I mean, they, you know, especially for some people whose access to physical reality is imperfect, whether it's, say, uh, aging people or disabled people or oppressed people, then I think there's a prospect of, in some respects, better access to reality in VR. So I'd say in the long term, it's rational for some people to prefer physical reality, but also rational for others to prefer VR. You can imagine a choice. You can enter this pod and hang out in this amazing virtual reality or enter this spaceship and go hang out on a distant planet, which has been terraformed 
into terraform reality, I'd say, you know, it's reasonable to choose one, it's reasonable to choose the other, but you're certainly not irrational if you, if you choose the VR option. So I say you can, in principle, lead a meaningful life in VR. This is not to say it's necessarily going to be wonderful or amazing. Life in VR may be good or it may be awful. Life in physical reality is good and awful uh, many, much of the time for many people. But I would say that at least the full scale of human experience is going to be available in VR. I mean, there is the question, is the prospect of life in VR, is it utopian, is it dystopian, or is it somewhere in between? I guess I would say that I don't know where it's going to fall on this scale, but clearly it has both potential utopian and dystopian elements. If you want to look for utopian elements, just look at yeah, new bodies, new forms of experience, near unlimited space, abundance of digital, go digital goods. You know, material goods will be trivial to manufacture and duplicate in, uh, in VR, much more so than in physical reality, which opens prospects for certain forms of abundance and distributive justice. At the same time, it's easy to imagine all going wrong, especially if the virtual worlds are controlled by corporations, as they very much are right now. If these virtual worlds are real worlds, then it's as if our real world is wholly controlled by a corporation. Think about the privacy issues, the manipulation issues that come along when the corporations are gods of these worlds. You think privacy and manipulation are bad on social media. Yeah, just wait till these groups are controlling the, uh, the worlds we live in. There are obviously potential issues about Seriously, unequal access, the forces of power and domination are likely to persist in VR, not to mention the neglect of the physical world. There are huge issues here to deal with. I would hope that it's possible to build a kind of open metaverse, which is not wholly corporate controlled, which is at least in part user-governed, user-created, user-controlled, but it's very much an open question how we get there. My guess is, okay, the metaverse will be like the internet. It'll bring wonderful things and awful things, we can hope the net value will be positive. So to sum up overall, repeat my slogan, virtual reality is genuine reality. I think the rest is up to us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget, like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, where you can find hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.